Today's gospel reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. The day was clear, the skies a California blue, the city was stretching itself into a busy bustle. Then a cry. A woman was trapped, tied and bound next to a pile of boxes on a train track. Everything about these boxes signaled danger, from their unusually bright green color to their big warning labels to the fact that people were staying far away from them. And this woman was crying out, hands tied behind her back, right next to those boxes, right on top of those train tracks. There was a mass of people who were pushing in, but they weren't doing anything. They were looking elsewhere. And then a slick black car pulled up. The crowd seemed to part around it. A figure emerged. This figure was wrapped in something dark, almost like a cape. He wore a mask. He dashed forward to the woman, covering the pavement with earnest energy. Nothing would stop him from saving her. Everyone looked on attentively as he stooped to her side and quickly unbound her hands. The woman embraced her hero. But his work was not yet done. He was soon called to a bank to thwart a robbery already in process. And then he received the message that Lucille, the San Francisco giant mascot, was in grave peril. This all really happened, and the hero was under four feet tall. You might recognize this tale as the story of Bat Kid, also known as Miles Scott, a five-year-old in California who is diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic lymph leukemia at 18 months old 
and he had been undergoing treatment for the past several years before he had finished in June of this year. Miles loves Batman. He wanted to be Batman, and so when his family submitted his hope to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, they used the power of social media and some very good-natured volunteers to set up a day of heroics to remember. Miles came to the city to try on a Batman costume, but soon as he slipped into his favorite part, the cape, he was called upon to rescue a damsel in distress, a bank teller, and that city mascot. At the end, the mayor himself congratulated the pint-sized hero. This story about this one kid stands out from the familiar batch of news stories, stories that follow the same old pattern of explosions or accidents or cancers or corruption. On this day in November, Bat Kid was everywhere in the news. Photos filled the internet. Over half a million tweets referred to him. The city attorney, a congressperson, a police chief, and the president of the United States sent him a thank you for being such so brave and heroic. On this day in November, Bat Kid saved the city of San Francisco and all of us tuning in from cynicism and self-centeredness. It was a joy to see his face. However, if you had read a media interview or heard from the Scott family a few years ago, you wouldn't have heard an uplifting story of Bat Kid. You would have heard about chemo treatments, endless hospital visits, and juggling the babysitting for Miles' younger brother. You would have heard of sleepless nights and needle pokes and dry mouth and temper tantrums. Or maybe you might not have heard anything because you would have read something about a kid with cancer and sighed heavily and said, oh, not again, and turned to a different story. Sometimes, truly, our hearts are too heavy to hear another tale of woe. It is too much to carry on our own. Yet, if you didn't know this story began in the corridors of pediatric oncology clinic, you might appreciate it a little less. And you would have missed how 12,000 people showed up and pulled together to make a dream come true for Miles, to give him the chance to be Batman. If you had moved on to a different story, you would have missed how crowds gathered. Someone volunteered to be that damsel in distress. Someone volunteered a Lamborghini as the Batmobile. And someone published a newspaper, the Gotham City Chronicle, detailing this adventure. You would have missed how Bat Kid raised his hand in victory as the mayor offered him a key to the city. And you would have missed that the key to the city was a very five-year-old friendly chocolate bar. We have come through the Christmas story with all its warmth and light, joy and new beginnings. As we've heard in the sermons and the stories in the last few weeks, we've watched the faith and wonder and courage of Mary and Joseph. We've heard the exclamations from the shepherds. We've sang carols and sat before trees draped in light and marveled once more at the wonder of this season. And then you decide to come to church today to pull yourself out of bed, to be faithful and persistent. You came here perhaps ready to hear tales of stars and wise people and glittering gold. And instead, the scriptures plunge us into the ice-cold waters of death. 
We do not hear carols. We hear the wails of mothers. And if you came today to escape the world, to hear a heartwarming story and coo over a non-threatening eight-pound baby Jesus, then this morning's text might come as a surprise. Indeed, I'd rather preach on the glow of the scene at the nativity than even mention Herod's fear-filled cruelty that made him destroy the lives of so many people. I'd rather preach about something new happening, something fresh breaking forth, rather than recall again a story filled with ruthless dictators, narrow escapes, homeless refugees, unexplainable pain, and inconsolable grief. After all, we know this refrain. It is an all-too-familiar echo down the halls of history. And hearing this, who doesn't want to return to the comforting cadences of deck the hall, fa-la-la-la-la? One scholar recalls how a man approached him one Sunday during the holiday season and said, I figured out why everyone likes Christmas, because it celebrates a baby, and a baby threatens no one. So the whole thing is a happy event, which means nothing at all. The scholar writes, Whatever else you say about Jesus, from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. This story that we read today makes it clear that we cannot go far into the life of the Messiah before encountering the pain of this world that we know all too well. The scripture passage doesn't want us to forget that this story of Jesus is also also intimately entwined with the story of the Jewish people, Like Israel, Jesus' family goes to Egypt to seek refuge and relief. Like Israel, Jesus' family must then leave Egypt and make a home in a new land. The scripture quotes the prophet Jeremiah's promise that we will have God with us even in the midst of tears and wailing. God is still holding on to the covenant to deliver us. God will not leave us even when Rachel will not stifle her lament. This small baby that we read about, born in the city of David, fleeing to Egypt, will grow up and put down roots in Nazareth and come into his own as God's salvation to the world. But this birth of Jesus is not an unthreatening event that leads to a life of cocooned privilege and power. From the very second chapter of Matthew, Jesus has a price on his head. He is homeless and seeking refuge. This strand of his story is already tangled in the wails and struggles of human life. And this is not the last time around Jesus when power-hungry struggles will lead to innocent, undeserving death, and there will be loud lamentations of unconsoled grief. Even on this Sunday after Christmas, we cannot escape the brutal facts of this world. Those who flock to Christianity at Christmas do so because they rightly savor the proclamation that light shines in the darkness. This is a beautiful and profound statement of faith. But what about when the story takes a nasty turn? when the golden-hued wrappings fall away and we discover something inside that isn't as pretty as we'd like? Will we stay here, here in this sanctuary when the candles and the wreaths have gone, stay here when there still is a cross at the center, 
Will we stick with this book that puts such troubling tales alongside its poetry and comforting promises? Will you keep reading? Will you keep reading for the moment when a boy stands with scholars and speaks words that strike them as true and amazing? Will you keep reading when a young man attends a wedding of friends and family and makes them realize that someone impressive and a little intimidating is standing in their midst? Will you keep reading when a teacher comes to a village as a stranger and leaves as a friend after having joined some villagers around a table for a meal, passing them the bread and the cup? Will you keep reading when the crowds gather and shout in celebration and when they gather and shout in derision? Will you keep reading when unexplainable love leads to unspeakable pain, and when those who mourn realize that they are not alone? Will you keep reading when broken human beings begin to understand how deeply Christ loves them? Will you keep reading when you experience something holy that no one can explain? Gilbert K. Chesterton once said in the early 20th century, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. The scriptures give comfort, yes, but they do not give comfort in the absence of struggle. The story of Bat Kid doesn't come without cancer. The salvation that Isaiah promises doesn't come without exile. The story of Christ at the manger doesn't come without a cross. We can get tired of these tears. We are human beings who do not get to live forever. Sometimes we do not see or understand how God is healing or knocking down tyrants. We are each human beings who struggle to proclaim faith in God when we hear the cries of Rachel. I recently heard an, in the, uh, an interview with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Boltz-Weber is a tall, striking woman with short, spiky hair, a body covered in colorful tattoos, and a history as a stand-up comic, as well as a recovering drug and alcohol addict. She is also a Lutheran pastor who wears a clerical collar, leads a church in Denver, Colorado, and speaks around the country about her love of Lutheran theology and liturgy. She recently came out with a book subtitled The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint. Last summer, she was interviewed at a festival in North Carolina, and there she started talking about what she saw as the penalty of Western individualism run amok in our religion. She had seen the need for human community when she was doing drugs with people in a house they all shared. And when she returned to the Christian fold, she saw again that need to live in community with people who are helping her live a more healthy life, no matter how disheartening or frustrating this new path she was on got. She says that when we go through tough times, the goal is not to go it alone and keep our perfect belief system intact, doing all the right things at all the right moments. The goal is to turn to the worshiping community and learn again and again how God comes to us in grace through other people by the love of Christ. She explains in her words, we've individualized this thing of faith so much in a way that makes it inaccessible to people because they're like, well, 
I don't know if I believe this. Like the Apostles' Creed. I can't say the creed because I don't know if I believe every line of the creed. She responds, Oh, geez, it's not your creed. It's the church's creed. And I think we really lost track of that with all this personal me and Jesus and how I feel and what my piety is, my personal prayer life, and all that stuff. She continues, I don't think faith is given with sufficient quantity to individuals necessarily. I think it's given with sufficient quantity to communities. The same with that whole thing that God will not give you more than you can bear. I don't think God will give us more than a community can bear. We've lost the beauty of community. This thing really is about community. Community is always what has been the body of Christ. After all, nobody believes every line of the creed every day, but a room full of people, for each line of the creed, somebody believes it, so we're covered, right? When we read the scriptures together and don't shy away from the story they tell, we are living into a faith that claims, yes, the world is fallen and I am broken. Yes, there is weeping and wailing and political upheaval and private griefs. Yes, I carry doubts and hesitations and tiredness into this church each week. But you know what? God is still going to keep God's promises. God is still going to show up even if I don't realize it. God is still going to show up in a world as messy and violent as this because God knows that we human beings, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are capable of something more. We are capable of pulling together around a kid who struggles with cancer. We are capable of working for peace in a very unpeaceful world. We are capable of standing in this sanctuary and helping others stand. And when the world overwhelms us and it is hard to get to our feet and say every line of the Apostles' Creed, we can turn to others for help. We can turn to others to drive us to church, to babysit our kids, hold our hands through treatment, hold our hands through tears, sing with delight, sing with lament, sing with faith. We are capable of being a community to each other. Imperfect, but a community nonetheless. Because we stand at the foot of the cross, we stand to sing songs of Christmas. One does not come without the other. In a few moments, we will sing the hymn, "'Twas in the moon of wintertime." The words and melody of this hymn might seem unfamiliar, but the story is one we already know. And the story around the song being written is, un- is familiar to us as well. Because it was written to a French folk tune in, the, tune in the 17th century by a missionary who was killed for how he would not leave the Huron tribe with whom he lived and ministered. He tried to take this story of Christ and translate it into a context more familiar to the local Canadian people. As he did that, he grew to love them. And when persecution came up, he was caught in the crossfire. As we sing this hymn in a few moments, listen once again to its stories. This story of Jesus is not bound to one time and place. It spans geographies and generations. We'd like to keep this Christmas story in a glowing nativity creche or a golden box filled with beautiful paper. We'd like to have all the characters looking a little bit like us. 
We'd like to imagine that we are right there, worshiping that baby, full of radiant love and faith. But this is not the way it works. The story of Jesus does not stay in a container. We must take it out and read it in a world that isn't always pretty and with people that we don't always understand. After all, this is not our story. This is not our story to read only when we feel like it. And these are not our lives to live just as we feel like. History, ecology, theology all reveal that we human beings are bound together in ways more complicated than we might understand at this moment. So yes, we might be confused by why we read this brutal story on the Sunday after Christmas. And that is okay. We can be confused. We don't always have to understand. That is not the point of church. The point of church is to get us to keep reading some tough stories together so that when we get to the beautiful parts about the radiant inbreaking of God's bountiful, insurmountable love, then we'll have people with whom to celebrate who will understand how much we need to go tell it on the mountain. In the, under, in the end, we won't fully understand why the massacre of the innocents happens, but we must keep reading. We won't fully understand why five-year-old Miles Scott even has leukemia, but we must keep reading. We won't fully understand why our lives get as complicated as they do, but we must keep reading. We won't ever fully understand what the scripture is saying at every moment in time, but together we must keep reading. Our story is not finished. God's story is not finished. We've only just begun, and we are not alone. Will you keep reading? Let us pray. God, you come into this world not to show us how far we've fallen, but to show us how much we love you. So be with us in the midst of all the tumult and strife, as well as the joy of our daily lives. May we look for you in the stranger and the friend. May we seek to see how we can be a community to each other. In your holy name we pray. Amen.